0: Hello, everybody. I'm Rob Frenette with the podcast HodgePodge, and welcome. And this episode and the next two episodes, we're going to be talking about Bob Crane, the actor, famous actor from Hogan's Heroes in the mid to late 60s. And there's been a great book written about them, Bob Crane, The Definitive Biography. And I have two of the three authors on this episode and the next two episodes, Carol Ford and Linda Groundwater. This is going to be a lot of fun. This episode will deal with his early life and also working in radio. So on March 24th, I was recording this with Linda and Carol. And here in Memphis, Tennessee, we had some massive storms. Power went out a little bit, and I let Linda and Carol talk until the power came back on. So I had to do some editing, and I think I have it figured out. So I hope you really enjoy this first episode and the next two. So here is... Carol Ford, and Linda Groundwater, the authors of Bob Crane, The Definitive Biography. Hello, everybody. I'm Rob Fournette with the podcast Hodgepod, and today we have a great episode or episodes we're going to talk about. It's Bob Crane, The Definitive Biography. It's a book about Bob Crane, who was the star of Hogan's Heroes in the mid-60s. I have two special guests today. And they are the two of the three authors for the book. First of all, I have Carol Ford. And Carol, welcome to the show today. Thanks so much, Rob. Thank you so much. And the other author is Linda Groundwater. And she uh, helped me out last year with a couple of episodes on the monkeys. It's a huge success. And uh, Linda, welcome. Thank you very much for coming back on my podcast.
1: No problem, Rob. You know, I love spending time with you.
0: Yes, thank you very much. Linda and I worked in radio many, many moons ago, so uh, Bob Crane used to work in radio, so I'm, I'm interested to talk about what happened with this this book, but this book is massive. It's quite a long book. It's uh, over 600 pages, and uh, I enjoyed reading it. First question is about the book. Uh, it took a long time to write, and you had to go through a lot of people to interview. I'll let you tell how many, and uh, the third thing is, how many obstacles did you come across? So,
1: Oh, you've asked a question and a half there. Um, well, back in 2002, I was just watching uh, table television at my mother-in-law's house, and Hogan's Heroes happened to come on, and I had not seen that show in a long, long time and realized that I still quite enjoyed watching it. Um, but I remembered that Bob Crane had been killed. And uh, so when I went back to my own house, I looked up what had happened, Um, because I was a child when he was killed, and I saw the info about his murder, but buried underneath all of that were things about radio, drumming, philanthropy, television, theater, and it really annoyed me that I couldn't see much information about those things, and all I was hearing about was the murder and the murder was the last, you know, five minutes of his life, but there was almost 50 years of the rest of his life. And I said, Well, I got to do something about this because this is annoying me. And <laughs> as a journalist, I said, Time to step up. Um, so I started work on that and reached out before this is, of course, before Facebook um, in a Yahoo group. And, um, I had gone to WICC in Stanford, Connecticut, which was one of, uh, one of Bob, uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, which was one of Bob's, um, key career stops and was getting some information there. And that's where I encountered Dee Young, who's the third author in this book, um, and, uh, Bob's cousin, Jim, and went on to the Yahoo groups and said, does anybody know anything? I'm writing a book. And then along came Carol, uh, who was in the United States, where, of course, I was in Australia at the time. I mean, still am, but at the beginning. <laughs> and um, I did go back and forth a little on this, but I, I, that's a whole different story. Uh, and and um, we just became this force to be reckoned with, didn't we, Carol? I mean, we spoke to over 200 people. And yeah. And a lot of people
2: it. it is a lot of people and they didn't all come all at once oh uh, no and, and you know the big thing that we encountered you asked rob about you know were there any challenges uh with <laughs> uh you know getting people to open up to us or even talk to us and you know in the beginning yeah that, there were a whole lot and and part of that is there has had been, and there still is, so much in the media about Bob Crane that is just negative. You had the movie that had just come out, uh, Autofocus, which did a whole lot of damage. Linda had a really hard time. Uh, in fact, they wouldn't even hardly let her in the door at KNX out in Hollywood, uh, well, where Bob like had, the spent, had mm-hmm. spent almost mm-hmm. ten years working in radio at KNX, but. Also, I mean, even today, if you go to Bob's Wikipedia page, it's not really anything more but a shell of, it's not even really a biography. I mean, you're supposed to go to a page like Wikipedia and just have factual things,
1: mm-hmm. which,
2: you know, for what it's worth, it is factual, but it is so slanted and distorted in how it is presented. It doesn't really tell a whole lot about Bob's life. It doesn't really tell a whole lot about Bob's career. Yes, there's a table there that has hit some of his work on there, but certainly not all. And it's been, I mean, you would think that Hogan's Heroes would have maybe a, a, a larger section than it does, but it only has two paragraphs. Most of the Wikipedia article, if you go to it, is about autofocus, the movie, and the murder, and then the scandal that was born from the murder, you know, from the investigation. So when Bob mm-hmm. was murdered, of course, there was all kinds of scandal that came out in the tabloids because of, you know, the the what was discovered at the time of his death. His sexual addiction was discovered at the time of his death and in on in, mass, in, in mass media. Mm-hmm. And so you have people from his life who were burned right at the outset because they wanted to talk about Bob Crane. The cast of Hogan's Heroes is an example. They had made a pact when Bob had been murdered that they would on different shows and different news outlets and talk about Bob, but only if they could talk about good things that he had done and not about the murder and not how many women he left with. Uh, acres. And so all, all of this combined You come to 2022 or or, or 2002, uh, 2003, when Linda is first putting those sealers out there, and she's getting a couple pieces. The big ones were, of course, Jim Senich, Bob's cousin, his first cousin, and, of course, Reverend Ed Beck, Mm -hmm. who was counseling Bob at the time. Um, But it really wasn't until we started to convince people, and it took a lot of effort on our part. To show them that we were not out to do damage. We were out to find the truth mm-hmm. and tell the truth, whatever the truth would be. And, and years. the first, it, it, it took years. years.
1: Some people took years. Wow. Robert
2: Clary didn't mm-hmm. come until almost the very well, end. Five
1: years, I think he didn't. He well, took longer than in. that.
2: It was longer yeah. than that. It. it Arlene Martell, who played Tiger on Hogan's Hero, she was a recurring guest star she was kind of our break breakthrough point with the cast and crew of Hogan's Heroes. And she was very timid with us at first. She wanted a signed contract. And I remember at four in the morning running over to my my office to get kind of a sample publisher's uh, you know agreement mm-hmm. that we would say, okay, we're going to interview you and here's what we're going to do for you. And so we ended up taking this contract, this agreement to be interviewed and, morphing it into something that they would understand which was you get to see your page proofs to make sure that you are not going to be misquoted and that we understood what you said to us uh and that we reported it properly um that you're going to get a copy of the book uh you know they had they had rights as a contributor if they wanted that and Mm. Interestingly enough, Arlene never ended up signing the agreement that she was the one that put in motion that agreement. But we sent that agreement to everybody, and if they signed it and returned it, we kept them on file, and then we sent them page proofs, and they were allowed to make it, say, "Oh, nope, this is how I actually meant that," or "Nope, everything looks good." Um, and that's just kind of standard protocol, is you know what we do in publishing. But it it helped build that trust, and after a while, one got another, got another, and then they started to say, we're in this with you, and then they would call up people, and they would say, oh, you've got to talk to these ladies, they're doing, doing this, this great thing. Um took a long time, didn't it, Wendell? Oh, God,
1: years, I mean, years, 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 and and each, they they the trust, once the trust was there, there was no stopping these people, and they would come to us, and say, I, you need to talk to this person. And they would be the person who would go to the, the other contacts that they had and say to that person, you need to speak to Carolyn Linda. You need to speak to Carolyn. And they would come to us and say, this person knows this and you need to talk to that. And it was, it was very, um, it, it was very exciting, but it was very humbling. And nerve wracking. It was nerve wracking. <laughs> <laughs> we Al Ruddy, some. You know? We
2: <laughs> some really big. I mean, Al Ruddy, Albertus Ruddy. You know, the director Al of the Godfather. I mean, my goodness. You know, I mean, and and but don't, I don't even we, go there. Um, <laughs> wow. I mean, he was Al wonderful. Ruddy. He was wonderful. He was. Yeah. He's
1: one of my favorite. Interviews. Yeah. Oh but, yeah. But um. But geez, the the stress. Uh, you know, just it was. I mean, you have to remember that we did this um, as fans, as in not necessarily a fan of Bob. We we did this as somebody who wanted the truth for Bob, but we didn't do it just because, gee, isn't it cool? I'm a fan of Bob and I want to make (laughs) him look perfect and beautiful and whatever. It was, here's a guy whose story isn't being told. And this is really important. People ask us all the time, you know, your book says so many good things about him. Why, you know, where's all your bad stuff? And I said, well we, we went out and said, tell me the truth. We didn't go out and say, just tell me the good stuff. We went out and said to everybody, anybody who wanted to talk to us, we were willing to talk to. And we did get a couple of people who had some things that they didn't particularly like and whatever, but we didn't leave those out of the book. They're in there. But the reason that there aren't a lot of them in there is there wasn't a lot to say. People didn't, have those things to say about Bob. They they didn't want to say those things about Bob. They said, you know, we just went out and said, I don't I'm not looking for the good stuff, I'm looking for the truth. We didn't know what we were going to be told. And what really surprised us, and I think you actually asked this later, but I'll bring it up now because it's relevant here, is that we spent a lot of time correcting misinformation, correcting misconceptions and setting the record straight on things that were just presumed to be fact, mm-hmm. when it was very easy to correct them, uh, and so that's how this book evolved into what it is, and it's also why it took so long to do. This book was started, the you know the grassroots of this book started in two thousand and two. It was published on the seventeenth of September, twenty fifteen. Twenty fifteen. Yes, yes. Um, which is thirteen more than thirteen wow. years than when I started it Um, but even in the final editing stage I remember in like March and April we were having other people come in with information and we'd go I'm in the middle of editing a chapter and Carol would say (laughs) hey so and so is just coming like shoot we've got to fit this in we have to edit this piece you know we were always in there changing fixing everything in there was as up to date as we could possibly get it and if we learned something was not exactly correct we Pulled it out. We clarified. You know, we said this person says this, but but that person says that. We didn't presume what the truth is. We searched for it and we validated it. And you know me as a journalist, anyway, Rob. Yes, you know, I do. Find out what the truth is. Find out what the truth is and put it in. If you can't verify it, then you don't use it. Or if you can't verify it and you think it that it's still worth saying, then you say here it is, but I couldn't verify it. And there were 200 people who said, I want my truth told, please. It hasn't been told.
0: Wonderful. And we
1: spent a lot of time doing that. It was amazing. It was an amazing process. I
2: think, I think, too, real quick, I want to say, too, it's not like we were commissioned by the family either. We get people saying, oh, you're friends with the family. We became <laughs> friends with the family after the fact. Because mm-hmm. throughout this whole time, Jim was really the cornerstone person that we had as as family. as family, and mm-hmm. then we had a, a couple of his other, uh, Bob's other cousins. There's uh, Jane Rison and Barbara Trembley, who were also Senich's. Um But we didn't have any of the the, the the immediate family. We didn't have any of Bob's kids. And uh, Bob's second son Scott came on. He was the first to come on. Uh, his daughter Karen, who is his uh, daughter from his first uh, marriage to Anne. She came on right at the very end. Uh, Robert, his first son, uh, we reached out to him. He respectfully declined. And his other daughter, Debbie, does not really ever talk to. Maybe wow. a one-off here or there, but she stays very quiet. But the fa- the core of the the kids didn't come on board the estate, the Bob Crane estate, which is part of you know Scott because his mom was married to Bob at the time of Bob's death. Mm -hmm. So he oversees the estate. I mean, we did not get that until very close to the end. We have it and we are very tied in tightly with both Scott and Karen. Uh, And, but that came at the end. It wasn't like they called us and said, Hey, you know, Bob Crane, we, you know, he's our family and we want, you no, I didn't get Scotty. I
1: didn't get, we didn't get Scott until I went to LA in 2010. That was when I interviewed Scott, and that was eight years after we yeah. began. And, yeah. eight, I mean, and seven years after KNX slammed the door in my face. Yeah. Slammed the door I mean, in your the face? The family. Yeah. Slammed the door in my face. Couldn't even get in. Managed to get in the door at one stage. Couldn't get past the lobby. Uh, they hung up the phone on me. Um, there was security sitting in the car park. It was a story, man. And now like, the people we've spoken to at KNX, who worked mm-hmm. with Bob, they were lovely. They were lovely. And people and
2: and um needs to be around. said now. It needs to be said now that the, the station KX is very much supportive of Bob Crane, the program director, is very much um interested in learning about Bob's career and how he impacted the station. So it's a different uh feel at K and X. Yeah, and
1: a lot it of the K and X To be fair, the KNX that I went to see was post-autofocus.
0: And they wanted
1: nothing. That that movie was so damaging that it put... I mean, the book probably could have been written five years earlier Mm -hmm. if autofocus hadn't come out and filled the world with lies that we are still refuting to this day.
0: So you did some networking through Yahoo and then you had some of the people when they gained your trust, they did your networking and then they helped you get more of the, you know, more people to write for the book. So that must've been when you guys, the ladies started really getting traction for the book. And like you said, you were having, uh, having to do like midstream edits. Is that correct? Oh yeah. Much. Yeah, it, it, it
2: was. Yeah. And, and also the other thing too, is that there's this whole part of Bob Crane that isn't the celebrity who isn't the radio guy or, or Colonel Hogan. There's, a kid that grew up in Stamford, Connecticut. So we got to know his friends from Stamford and and get to hear what he was like as a kid. And we got to hear what he was like working in radio at at you know the East Coast stations at WLEA and at WICC, uh, which you know is it predates all of the Bob Crane out on the West Coast. And all of this, you know, because Linda was. In Australia, she couldn't very easily do boots on the ground here in the <laughs> United States. So I was kind of like I would go up. I see D, D, and I would we would stomp all over Connecticut because she's right in Stratford, and she had all of the Connecticut people, all the Connecticut radio people, and so D and I we exhausted uh, Bridgeport and uh, and Stamford as well. And uh, you know, we we really between the three of us, um, we. We, there was no rock left unturned. And once people learned what we were doing, they were so, they would say to us, we are in this with you. We, anything you need from us, we will, we will do. We will help you. Um, and that brings me to just say that this is something that, you know, there are lots of biographies out there and and there are some very, very good ones written by some very brilliant biographers, but this seems different. This has been a, like Linda said, a force to be reckoned with at the start of, of um, our, our episode here tonight. And Dee and Linda and I, I don't think Bob Crane's biography could have been done the way that it was done with us, with anybody else. We have thrown all of our blood, sweat, and tears into this. And we brought our strengths to it. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that, it is
0: the book that it it became. Yeah. uh, 12 years is a considerable amount. And I can tell you just working with Linda in radio many years ago, Linda is pretty much the most straightforward person I've seen in radio. One of the nicest people in radio that I worked with because there's a lot of jerks that work in radio, but I just want to put your check in the
1: mail tomorrow. Thank you
0: very much. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. I'm shocked that they would slam the door. But we go back to the old school and, uh, you know, deep digging, you know, don't you verify a source and then you go with it. You don't go with mm-hmm. it unless. So I, I agree with that. So um, so Bob Crane grew up in Stanford, Connecticut, and he went to Stanford High School and he started to have a love for a the drums uh, in his young age. And then he also... Had that love for radio, Uh, you know. I love radio too, and uh, I was interested to. I never knew that that he worked in radio. So, if you could please elaborate, like his uh, his rise from the east coast to the west coast, because KNX really, really fascinated me when he got out there.
2: So yeah, so Linda and I'll. I'll We'll bounce back and forth on this because there are there are things that we both like telling about about his radio career. It is brilliant. I mean, when I first started listening to him on the radio through his old Air check set, you know I found you know just through aircheck collectors, you know you you do trades and things like that. It's like wow, he doesn't even sound like he does on Hogan's Heroes. His <laughs> voice is very fast, and it's like whereas Hogan is you know much more you know. But very, you know, calm, and this is what we're going to do, man. Well, and,
1: that yeah. reminds
2: you that... And, TV- yeah, yeah. <laughs> so We'll get there. We'll get there. Hold that thought. So, so, but in Stanford, Connecticut, when Bob first graduated from high school, he didn't go right into radio. He wanted to. He was a drummer, and he loved his drums. And he missed, you know, being a part of the big band era because he graduated in 1946. And so the war was over. Big bands were... Uh, you know, they were kind of fading out. And so he is sending out his recordings to radio stations when he was on his honeymoon with Anne, uh, in May of 1949. It, it's in, <laughs> they honeymooned in the Poconos, and there's a little radio station, WVPO, and it stands for the Voice of the Poconos. And it's in Stroudsburg, which is actually partly where my family, well, it is where my family comes from. I know the little radio station. It's, it's, you know, it's a closet. Um, but he went there. He went there on his honeymoon and and walked in, just did a cold, you know, hey, I'm here. Can can I have a job? You know, and they were like, yeah, no. And so he went back to the hotel and everybody at the hotel made fun of him saying, well, you know, they called him the voice of the Poconos for the rest of their honeymoon. Um, he He was very much, you know, looking forward to getting into radio, but he, you know, was not having good luck. So he was working in a jewelry store. Until finally in about March of 1950, he gets a call from Cornell, New York, WLEA, and I'll let Linda pick this up here because she likes to tell this part.
1: I <laughs> can okay, see I'm smiling already. Yeah. I love this story. This story came from, um, Bob's, Bob's cousin Jim told us this story and he said, um, you know, the thing is Bob's family were quite, um, Um, on both sides of the the aisle here in regards to Bob's radio career because Bob's mother was very much, this is terrific, go for it, do whatever you want, Bobby, it'll be fantastic. And Bob's father was like, you need a steady job, you've been offered a job, you know, you've got a job at a jewelry store, Um, you could inherit this store, and Bob wanted to do what Bob wanted to do. So he he got a, um, he was going to go to Hornell and he wanted to go to Hornell and he, I'm just looking at the story. He couldn't he couldn't afford to bring his family up there? So Bob said, "I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a, a ride down there, and I'm going to meet up with the radio people, and I'm going to see what's going on. There's a job on there, and he couldn't. He he, he packed up his car to go to to New York, and his car broke down part way down there. And he said, "I can't miss this interview. I can't miss this interview." So he hitched a ride on the back of a horse and wagon and a farmer drove him to the radio station. <laughs> and when Bob got there, you know, uh, Jim said he had, uh, you know, hay sticking out of his suit, and there was probably this slight distinct smell of manure and, you know, but he walked into that radio station and he said, "Hi, you go? And here I am. I am ready to be on the air. And the station said, what are you talking about? We need a maintenance man. And to his credit, Bob said, I'll take it. I'll take it. Wow. And within no time, you know, Bob was off sweeping the floor. But then all of a sudden, um, Bob got invited to be on the air very shortly after that. And so that was Bob's first on air, true on air experience. And it was because he was willing to do whatever it took. And he lived at the Y during the week and he'd stick his milk out on the, on the, um, the on the windowsill and he'd heat up soup in a can on the radiator. And then he'd play drums, I think, three times a week in a club so that he got, I think, $11 a week or something like that. Some very, which sounds like nothing now, even more than nothing. It wasn't a lot then either. Uh, and he'd go home on the weekends to his wife and then he'd come back and he'd work again. He just loved what he did. And eventually um, Bob became program director at WLEA and it just expanded from there. But a small station like LEA in Hornell is where Bob really learned to do, you know, he honed his craft and he started to become the Bob Crane radio announcer personality, as he preferred. that. We came that the world came to know. It was
2: easy for him to do those types of things at, and with all due respect, I don't want to say smaller, but they were smaller radio stations. It wasn't like KNX, which was a union station. He would never have been able to walk in the door at KNX and say, I'm going to do this show my way or not at all, <laughs> uh, without having had all of this extra time behind him. But, and the only way he was able to do that was through working at the non-union stations and so WLEA was one WBIS in Bristol Connecticut was one and then uh, WLIZ he started at then they bought out ICC WICC and then shifted everybody over to WICC so it was kind of a hostile takeover mm-hmm. um, WLIZ kind of gets brushed under the carpet um, but really he, he was at WLIZ first um, and, then, and then WICC mm-hmm.
0: Thank you for listening to this first of three episodes about Bob Crane, The Definitive Biography with Carol Ford and Linda Groundwater. Next episode will be about Bob Crane again, and we have another one after that. So listen for the next episode as well, and we'll see you next time.